Welcome to another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. I know we want to get into the action, but I have to ask that you help me armor us up a bit for the bumpy road ahead. Because I bring you the first hour of this show without unrelated ad nonsense as a proof of concept. And if you value it, then come over to THC Plus for the $8 a month and hear the full two-hour interviews as they were designed to be and as you would enjoy them most. Go to thehiresidechats.com or just click the link in the show notes to get started and within a minute you'll be plugging in your new Plus Show RSS feed into a hopefully decentralized podcasting 2.0 supported app. Feed the things you want to grow and starve the things that gotta go and we will reach the promised land. Think about that and enjoy the show. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Fireside Chats. Another day, another deep dive into this weird world from sunny San Diego. I'm Greg Carlwood, and as much buzz as there is about the UFO mystery lately, the reality is that some of our oldest written material from our deepest history talks about chariots of fire, flying machines, messengers from another realm, and all the sorts of things people are patiently waiting to have confirmed by the Pentagon thousands of years later. But it seems that at every turn, some sort of academic, royal, or religious authority has been there to tell us that these stories and depictions are not what we think they are. And that's funny, because so many positions of power have historically been framed as intermediaries between man and the heavens. Kings, pharaohs, popes, it's easy to forget that context, but when you think about it, can we really have it both ways? Maybe the people who occupy these seats of power throughout time quite literally are the agents of unseen forces ruling over humanity. Forces that realize the greatest power is to not be seen. And can we really expect royal families living lavish lifestyles of laziness and Prada-slippered popes to rat out their multidimensional bosses? Well, this is where my head's at after reading Holographic Culture, the 500-plus page, eight-years-in-the-making masterwork of today's guest, Pierre Sabac. He's a guy with a real knack for pattern recognition, on top of being a bona fide expert on ancient symbolism and etymology. His work introduces a new way to look at and understand the UFO mystery through a completely new field called scaphology, which is the study of angelic ships within religion and mythology. In his latest book, Pierre uncovers an infiltration of non-human and humanoid beings, a concealed power structure which forms the basis of the religious and the philosophical traditions. He tells you where they come from, what they want, and how these beings created humanity and control the culture through a parallel society and its grafted bloodline. But Pierre is no stranger to dense studies of deep material as he's produced a few other books and DVDs with titles like The Murder of Reality, The Seven Degrees of Symbolism, and Artifact R, The Roswell Artifact. We're definitely going hard and deep today, so buckle up. The Angelian Etymology Decoder, Divine Invasion Detective, and Scaphology Scholar, Pierre Sabac, welcome to the higher side. Hi there. It's great to be on your show at last, so thank you very much for inviting me. Thanks for being here. Yeah, it's great to be on, and that was a fantastic introduction, so thank you for 
really setting me up there. That was a great <laughs> introduction. Of course, man. It's all in a day's work, and I'm in a really good mood today. I really enjoyed your book. Thanks for sending it out to me. Of course, it was a colleague of yours, John Peters, who set this up for us, and I'm very thankful that he did. It's hard to really find the best entry point here, but let me bring the audience up to speed with what John wrote to me. He said, Pierre's work shows that what we now call UFOs are real physical ships that can drop in and out of this frequency range. He shows that the occupants have overcome wave-particle duality. They can exist as waveform and are called high spirits, or take a solid particle form and are called high creatures. They may appear to be magical, but it seems to all be done with advanced technology. <laughs> well, I definitely came away feeling like you made a really excellent case for that, and these beings would have been here since the beginning of the human story and still control the culture through the political and religious authorities that are the hybrids of the grafted bloodline. Is that right? Is that the thesis we're working from today? Yes, there's lots of different elements which you've just spoken there and which we really need to unpack. Yes. Basically, the book is called Holographic Culture, and we're dealing here with a race of beings that have deconstructed the mechanics of waveform reality. So this basically means that they exist both within the spiritual range. And this is why they're referred to as the Ruach Elohim, the high spirits. This is another term for the jinn, jinn, a serpent or worm. Now, the worm or serpent is another word for the seraphim, which are these non-human angels. But essentially, they can dematerialize and then they can physically reappear within this reality. And therefore, they're referred to in, shall we say, duplicitous language or paradoxical language. So the Ruach Elohim, the high spirits, can appear or materialize as the Elake, which is a high creature or a living god. Again, this is polymorphic language. And really, we're dealing with polymorphic symbolism. And this is really important when we're looking at the Elohim, which are the high ones. The high ones are these deities which originate from heaven. So therefore, when we're dealing with angels, which is the scaphological tradition, the study of angelic boats or ships within the classical and religious tradition, we're really dealing with the angelic tradition. This is the classical tradition. Class is the naval fleet. This relates to that which is classified because this is a hidden tradition. And this appertains to the naval tradition or the angelic tradition. So, for example, when we look at polymorphic symbolism, we can see that the etymology of Malak and angel is a polymorphic word of Malak, which is a sailor. So we're dealing here with angelic sailors. And this is why in the biblical traditions, for example, Yahweh Sabaoth is described as the Lord of the host. Now, the words Sabah, which is an army, where we get the word Saboa from, is related etymologically to Savi, which is the military. So Yahweh Saboaf is this military host. But in particular, Yahweh Saboaf specifies a naval itinerant, a naval host. And so we see that there's a correspondence between Saboaf, which is Yahweh Saboaf, the lord of the host, Sabah army, Sebet, a crew of a vessel, and Tevar, which is an ark. And this is really important when we're describing the angels, because the angels are seen to be crew members of naval vessels, and they're described as residing on these angelic vessels, which are known as the Ophanim wheels. I'd, I want to really make a point also about the angels in terms of their demarcation within the occult tradition, because within the occult tradition, you have 
two demarcations within the occult tradition. So you have knowledge which is given to mankind from non-human angels. They are known as the seraphim, and they're equated with the watcher. So Sofefa watcher is equated with Serapha serpent, Serapha which is fire. So the seraphim is another word for the jinn, because the jinn are said to be born of fire, jinn which is a serpent or a worm. And then we have the partition with the cherubim, which are these human angels, and they're typically represented in symbology with a sword. So there's a wordplay between kerub, which is a humanoid angel, and kerev, which is a sword. And therefore, the human angel is typically identified with the sword. Now, I just want to make a point that with the human and the non-human angels, in the biblical and the apocryphal tradition, they often appear together. So they they appear as this host, and this host usually incorporates human and non-human angels, which are the seraphim and the cherubim. I refer to this dichotomy as the seraphim-cherubim dialectic. But I just want to draw attention to the fact that the cherubim, cherub, which is the singular for a humanoid angel, is related to carib, which is a small landing vessel or, or a boat. And we see also with the seraphim that the seraph is equated with Sapanasela and Safina, which is a ship. And so in both traditions, both within the humanist tradition, referring to the humanoid angels, and the seraphic tradition, referring to the seraphic host, we see that they're both identified with both boats and ships. And therefore, as we said before, Malak an angel is equated with Malak a sailor. So that's kind of, if you like, an a short introduction into the scatological tradition. I'll just let you interject there, and then we can take it from there. <laughs> well, you're hitting all the high notes. And in the book, you say you rely on polyglottal symbolism throughout the study, which you say is defined as word plays that repeat through many different languages. You've given us some examples there. And in the book, you talk about this happening through Greek, Latin, Hebrew, and even English, the words for angel, ship, sailor, mariner, ruler, and king, these are all very closely related, and that's no accident. We do have even the English term divine, king, ship, which right there, it hits all three. So this is a pretty common motif, right? Uh, yes, this is correct. And actually drawing upon the idea of kingship, this is a codification that the king originates from heaven. And this is why we refer to in English as highness. Highness is a reference to the Elohim, because the Elohim literally means the lofty ones or the high ones. And so the bloodline of the king is deemed to be angelic. And so therefore, we see certainly within the Semitic languages, this identification with Malak an angel and Melech a king. Again, the terminology is closely related with Mechel, which is a container, which is again a symbol of a vessel which is identified with a boat or a ship. But also we're finding that these word plays are polyglottal. So for example, in the Arabic, Sarif, which is a noble, which is equated to the Seraphic tradition, and Safina, which is a boat or a ship. Again, within the Greek, Archon is a ruler and is related to Olkas, which is a ship or a vessel. And again, the wording archon is polymorphic because the word archon also means an angel. And so we're seeing that the angel is typified with its boat or its vessel, Olkas, which is a large carrier vessel. Again, within the Persian, there's this identification. And again, the bloodline of the king is typically correlated with the serpent, which is the seraphic tradition. And we see that typically the king is thought to be stitched or a grafted bloodline. And so we see that there's this 
correspondence between Basilikos, which is a serpent, and Basilius, which is a king. In the Persian, the wordplay would be Mal, which is a leader or a ruler, and Mal, which is a serpent. As we said before in the Arabic, this would be Sarif and Seraph, a serpent. Or even within the Greek, there's a wordplay between Archon and Drakon. But remember that the word in Archon, which is this type of angel, is going back to the old Babylonian root Akan, which is a seraph, and Ak, which is to shine. And so these wordplays are showing that the bloodline of the king is identified with this angelic lineage, which is typified as the angelic sailor. And this is really the basis of scaphology, is this classical tradition, classes the naval fleets. And this naval tradition is classified, and it's classified through this compartmentalized tradition. And so it's this secret tradition. And again, I just want to draw attention also to the bloodline of the prince as well, because within the Old Semitic, Sar is a prince and is related to Sira, which is a boat. And we see also within the Arabic as well, Amir is a prince and is equated with Amara, which is a fleet or a host. And so these wordplays are pretty consistent and found throughout many languages. And I refer to this type of symbolism as polyglottal symbolism. Literally, it means many tongues. So these wordplays appear throughout many languages and they encode what I refer to as the artifact. Now, the artifact is this linguistic code which is found within numerous languages and is correlated with the existence of these angelic sailors, which are cross-cultural and found throughout all languages and found encoded within the symbology of all cultures. And so that's the basis of polyglottal symbolism. But again, when we're actually dealing with the seraphic tradition, which are the angelic hosts, which are identified with these non-human angels, again, within the ancient Semitic the Erin, which are the watchers or the shining ones, again, Ur, which is a watcher, or which is light, they were equated with the dragon, so Drakane is to watch or to flash, and they're synonymous with a deity, so there is this, if you like, this correspondence between Drakon and Drakos and I, or Theos God and Theros a watcher. Again, Theros a watcher is closely concordant with Thurion, which is a beast, which is, is used in the symbology to denote a, a dragon or a sentinel, which is this type of watcher. Now, the seraphims, Serepha, which is fire, the flaming ones, they're equated with Sira. Sira is the shining one. Now, Sira is the Arabic word for Sirius. Now, what's very important about the shining one, Sira, which is Sirius, is that there's lots of different interesting wordplays identified with this star system. So, for example, in Arabic, Sir is a mystery. And again, Sira is the mysteries of Ra. But we see also that there's a correspondence with the Hebrew word. Now, this is a special type of wordplay, which I refer to as a diptych paranomasia. So this wordplay works in the Hebrew into the Arabic. So sira, which is the Arabic word for Sirius, is a wordplay on the Hebrew word sira, which is a boat. And this is because these angels are equated with the flaming star Sirius. And therefore, we see that there's a correspondence between sira, which is a boat, Zar, which is an angel. Now, in the Aramaic, the word Zar is polymorphic. It also means an angel, an alien, a stranger, or a foreigner. And this is very interesting because, therefore, in the ancient Aramaic, we see that the angels are synonymous not only with boats, but they're also equated with aliens as well. And therefore, we're seeing that there is this crossover with the ufological tradition, which I refer to in my book, Holographic Culture, as the scaphological tradition. Now, scaphology is really a deconstruction of these angelic boats, ships, or vessels. The word scaph is 
a type of small vessel, scapto, which is to dig out. So this is a hollow type of vessel, which are equated with the angelic host. Now, the angelic host are also equated with the second creation, which is the planting of life on the earth. And so we see that there's, if you like, there's this relationship between Sira, which is the Hebrew word for boat, and Yetzira, which is creation, equated with Yetzer, which is a creature. And this is where we get the correspondence in English between mooring a boat, which we would say to birth a boat. The idea of birth is equated with these angelic boats or vessels, which in the esoteric tradition is correlated with the second creation. And so there is, if you like, a distinction between the first creation, which is the creation of the universe or the formation of the universe, and then the second creation, which is the planting of the seed on the earth, which are identified with these beings from Sirius. And so that's if you like, some of the correspondences found within polyglottal symbolism. I want to also just draw attention between some of the word plays as well, between these beings from Sirius. So, for example, Sirius is equated with the dog star. Another word for Sirius is the dog star. In Arabic, al-Kalb, which is the dog. But we're seeing that there's a word play in English. And again, this is working on polyglottal symbolism. So, in English, God is a reversal of dog, and this is making reference to the dog star. And again, the priest would wear a dog collar. Again, the dog collar is equated with Sirius. This is the symbology. But again, we're finding the same wordplay within the Arabic as well. So we have in Arabic Allah, which is God, and Awa, which is to bark. Again, we would say in the Egyptian mysteries, Ra is the sun god, coming from the etymology Ra to see, and again is equated with Ur, which is a watcher or a shining one, which are the Erin, the watchers. And and we see that Ra is a growling noise of the dog. So we're seeing that Ra again is represented as this growling dog. But again, even within Latin and even within Japanese symbolism as well, we're finding the same type of wordplays. So Lato is Apollo. Now, typically Apollo is said to be the sun god, but covertly he's the dog star. And so Lato is equated with Latro, which is to bark or to snarl. And again, this is equated with the occult tradition. So Latins is to hide or to conceal. To hide or to conceal, again, is equated with the Latin language. We're dealing here with duplicitous language, that which is hidden or concealed. Essentially, we're dealing with the occult. Ocular is an eye, and occult is to conceal or to hide, which is representational of the jinn. Jana is to hide or to conceal, where we get the etymology of jinn, jinn, a serpent or a worm. So this is the hidden tradition, which is equated with a dragon. Dracos, which is an eye, can be symbolized as the all-seeing eye. Theos, a god, theos, a watcher. Or again, when we're dealing with the seraphim, sofeth, a watcher, seraph, a serpent. Now, the watchers and the serpents are one and the same. They are equated with this same type of entity, which are identified with Sirius. The watchers are the shining ones. So that's, in a nutshell, polyglottal symbolism. But you find polyglottal symbolism within all languages. So as I mentioned before, within the Japanese, the English wordplay God and Dog in Japanese would be found with Kami God and O Kami, which is a wolf. This is ostensibly referring to the heaven's dog Tengu, literally means heaven's dog. This is a reptilian type of deity which are venerated at Japanese shrines. And again, the Japanese 
they also worship these angelic vessels. So in Japanese, you have what is known as the Utsunofune, which is a hollow ship or a boat. Now, within the Edo prints, these hollow ships and boats, which are equated with the Japanese deities and the planting of the Japanese people on, on the mainland Japan, they're represented as flying saucers. So the Edo prints actually show these boats as circular round vessels. Now, what's interesting within Japanese symbolism is the wording is polymorphic. And again, this is useful in order to demonstrate a polymorphic symbolism, which is a different type of symbol. Polymorphic symbolism is where words have multiple meanings. So, for example, we used the example earlier of Malak, an angel, and Malak, which is a sailor. So the angel can be represented as an angelic sailor. Now, within Japanese, Utsunofune is a hollow boat or a hollow ship, which are equated with these angelic vessels, which are round or circular. But the word is polymorphic. It also means a hollow tree. And so therefore, within the Japanese temples, the precincts of the temple, the parameters of the temple are always encased with these hollow trees. And the hollow tree is used as a polymorphic symbol of these hollow ships or vessels. And again, this would actually denote that the temple is identified or correlated with these vessels. So that's a polymorphic symbolism and polyglottal <laughs> symbolism. Polyglottal is where the word plays are cross-cultural and they transfer into multiple different languages. Polymorphic is where you have a singular word which has multiple meanings. In the Islamic tradition, Wuju al-Quran is a polymorphic word. This refers to polymorphic words which are found within the Quran. Wuju means the forgotten recitation. So the, the forgotten recitation or the forgotten Quran is a polymorphic word. And this again indicates that the Quranic documents are documents of initiation. So again, we're dealing here with a highly elliptical language. It's polymorphic language, which is working on multiple levels. So uh, yeah, I'll let you ask a few questions there. Yes. Wow. Well, you certainly got the words down. And you do have some great terms in the book, like angelians and the divine invasion terms that really do blend together the ancient accounts with the modern ones and cross the angel alien divide and to put a finer point on scaphology you write scaphology is the missing link between religion mythology and ufology a secret tradition not understanding scaphology within the mystery schools is like a christian not knowing about the devil Scaphology is integral to the correct decoding of the world's oldest religions and symbols. So you're saying the mystery schools and the secret societies, probably even the Vatican libraries, this is the deep, dark secret they protect. Help people understand that a bit more clearly if you could, not so much in the wordplay, but what are some convincing pieces of evidence we could tell them about to best make the case that these secret societies know this stuff and that they hide these things. Okay. I mean, that's a very deep subject in itself, but I'll, I will have a go at trying to highlight some of the points. I think, first of all, when we're dealing with the mystery religions, we're dealing here with religion. And again, going back into some of the wordings, religare is tomorrow a boat or a vessel. So the religious discourse is based upon this idea of a boat or a vessel, which are equated with these angelic sailors, Malak an angel, Malak a sailor. And again, this is why we refer to the idea of worship, because we're venerating these angelic boats and these angelic vessels. Mm. Uh, but again, that wordplay is polyglottal, because the wordplay worship is found also within the Arabic. Sabar is to praise or to glorify, but is equated in the Arabic with Saboaf, which is the angelic host. So they're glorifying the angelic host, 
which are equated with these ships, boats are vessels. And again, even within the Greek mysteries as well, you have naos, which is a temple sanctuary, equated with nos, which is a boat. And this idea that the temple sanctuary is, is a boat and is, if you like, transposing heaven upon the earth and this idea that the host is found within the church is also found within the nave. The nave of the church is equated with navis, which is a boat. So this is actually encoded within our language. But the thing is, is that the angelic sailor, which is this emissary, is being redacted from the traditions. And so therefore, we're dealing here with this classified discourse, this discourse which has been hidden from view. And it is integral to understanding mythology because when you're dealing with a messenger, it's implicit within the mythological tradition that you're dealing with an angelic sailor. But if you're not conversant with the scaphological tradition or the classical tradition, you're not aware of the naval tradition, then you're obviously not going to be aware of the idea that the messenger is equated with a sailor and is identified with a vessel. And again, these vessels are represented in the Apocrypha and in the biblical traditions variously as ships, boats, chariots, seed baskets. So yeah, this is something which we really need to deconstruct. And I would say that basically a lot of modern day mythology and again, a lot of the religious discourse and the deconstruction of the religious discourse is missing this integral component, this part which is missing. And so we have a conceptual, it's almost like a black hole within academia, a conceptual black hole. And this really needs to be fully understood and fully deconstructed so that we can begin to reassemble some of the ancient myths and the mythologies and again, begin to reassemble some of the religious symbolism, which is inherent within the scriptural traditions. Mm hmm. Wow. Well, yes. So they have to know because the very word religion relates to all this and the foundational traditional things they do also relate. So they must know. And the redacted nature proves an intention to hide it. I get that. So let's talk about this very recent disclosure narrative that's making its way across mainstream news networks in America. Stories of the Pentagon finally opening up in the book. You say things like, the modern concept of the aliens are part of an occult syntax, a complete code that highlights non-human interference. And Project Blue Book's crowning achievement was to dub previous airships as unidentified, making them seem mysterious and incomprehensible, as well as taking into account the complexity of the secret before humanity, disclosure is not going to come from civil authorities. So you frame this as a secret as old as time, and something that is actually driving governments and their actions even today. So it seems pretty clear this disclosure theme that's happening has to be a deception. Well, why now? Why tell us anything? Are they trying to slowly make this hidden parallel society more overt or something? It seems odd when they already have us by the balls, the secret is kept. So why spin the narrative and why do it now? Yeah, that's a really good question. Well, I would argue, first of all, that we've always had disclosure. We've had what's known really as partial disclosure. And partial disclosure works on symbology and it's found within every single language. So it's a little bit of a misnomer to refer to disclosure because we've already had disclosure. Within the biblical tradition, the disclosure is the apocalypse because the apocalypse is apocalyptic, which is to unveil. So the uncovering is disclosure. Literally, it means to disclose, to unveil. So 
the apocalypse is the unveiling. Again, I, I think that this is very, very complex. We're seeing, as what you said, there is this gradual, shall we say, unveiling within public discourse. But within the ancient world, this was a private discourse. And this was, if you like, the symbolism was found within allegory. So, for example, alos agoria means other speaking. It means another. And again, alos other speaking is really referring to the others. And the others are the alos genes, which is translated as an alien. And again, they're equated the alos, uh, other or another, where we get the word alosagoria, other speaking. The others were represented with a halo, halos, which is a halo. So alos, which is other or another, referring to the others, can be represented with halos, which is a halo, and halios, which is a fisherman, a fisherman of men. Again, this is another signifier of an angelic sailor, equated with alos, which is the sea, which again has this denotation of, of space within the ancient mystery religions and the spirit. Mm -hmm. So I think the metaphor which you used was very good in which there is this, if you like, this gradual unveiling. But in some respects, it's a little bit of a misnomer because we've had partial disclosure and we've had this for thousands of years. And so within the Egyptian hieroglyphics and the frescoes, we're seeing that boats are equated with these angelic messengers. Mm -hmm. And I definitely liked that point in the book about certain disciples in the Bible being depicted with halos, and that is a little clue that they're supposed to be connected to this angelic bloodline, or they're born of a vessel, as you say. But this current disclosure narrative, I mean, they really are forcing it into the news cycle. Nobody's really asking for it. So it seems like there must be some weird agenda because it doesn't seem driven by social pressure or anything like that. Listen, I think this is a good point, and this is going into what I refer to in my book as the dialectic. So essentially what we're seeing is, is you have the argument, the counter-argument, and the synthesis of the argument. Now, with the apocalypse, with the unveiling, you would have the synthesis of ideology. So, for example, if you was looking at Marxist ideology and materialism, you would see that, for example, the thesis would be feudalism, the antithesis would be capitalism, then the synthesis is communism. And this is really what we're moving towards is the synthesis of ideology. And part of the synthesis of this ideology is where you get the synthesis of ideology. There's the synthesis of gender. And there's also the synthesis between human and non-human entities. And again, this is actually being seen and being driven through this type of disclosure, which is occurring at the moment. Mm. Well, yes, it'll be interesting to see as it unravels, if it really goes in that direction. And I guess I would ask, what do these beings want with us ultimately? I would think that part of the fun of ruling over someone is the flex, the ego gratification. What do these Angelian masters of the waveform get out of putting so much energy and attention into ruling over ignorant masses in secret? Well, they are masters of worlds. And so the implication is, is that they've seeded many different worlds. And again, we can only speculate, and so this would be conjecture. But my understanding of this is their currency is knowledge, and so they're very interested in knowledge, and this is why they've seeded many different planets. My understanding of this is that they're interested in emergent systems, and therefore they're reviewing evolutionary systems, and they're analyzing evolutionary systems. And again, 
they're effectuating changes within the evolutionary system. So if you like, the hardware are the institutions, the governments, etc. But the software is the human mind, which runs itself and which runs its course. Now, some of these emergent systems can be predicted and some of these emergent systems can't be predicted. So, for example, let's say there's a species of being on a different planet and let's say they're not as technologically as advanced as our species but let's say that they're actually really good at building maybe they would design a new type of concrete and this type of concrete is better than any other existing type of concrete and then this would be assimilated in the knowledge bank in they would assimilate this knowledge and so i think that the currency within the universe is knowledge and they're using emergent systems such as systems of evolution in order to remain top dog because i actually think that we're dealing here with a predacious species now in terms of alien entities, I think in general, most species move towards equilibrium. So I think most alien species, they evolve towards a state of equilibrium. But there are, if you like, beings on both sides of the fence. So you may have very spiritual beings and then you may have very predacious beings. And so here we're dealing, I think, with a more predacious race of being. And they're interested in actually remaining at the top of the food chain. And so they're exploiting these emergent systems in order to gain information and gain knowledge and to remain at the top of the food chain. But again, this is conjecture because, again, we're dealing with a holographic species they have deconstructed time and space they exist outside of time they exist outside of space and not only this but they've also deconstructed the spiritual realm and i think that this is important to underline because as a holographic culture once you deconstruct the waveform reality and you can pick apart the difference between the particle and the waveform then this leads into the spiritual realm and the realm of ideas and so they are very closely equated with the spiritual realm and the realm of ideas and so this interface between the physical realm and the realm of ideas plato referred to this as the realm of universal form which are universal ideas which is the spiritual realm of ideas this imaginal realm and the imaginal realm is particularized as a particular form and it becomes physical in physical material reality. And there is this interface between the spiritual realm, which is this realm of ideas, and then the physical realm. And I think that the Ruach Elohim, the high spirits, Akka, the Elake, which is a high creature, they're very interested in this interface between the two realms and they're interested in the monopoly of ideas and of yeah, the franchise of knowledge, basically, this interface between um, learning and understanding and having knowledge, which is this currency. Mm. Wow, they've deconstructed the spiritual realm. It just seems so mind-blowing. They are, I guess, inspired by learning every intimate detail of reality, setting things up, and then watching how they go and you don't really have to step out onto the main stage if you have the technology to stay hidden. Well, yeah, and I think that this is actually found within the jinn as well. And so you have a type of jinn known as the Karen. Now, the word Karen is translated typically as companion. I also like the word familiar. And the Karen are closely related to Kayin, which is an entity. And again, it's closely concordant with Erin, which is a watcher or a shining one. The implication would be that the Karen is this type of seraphic host. So the Karen are telepathic, and this is found within the Arabic etymology, Kari, meaning telepathic. And so these angelic beings, 
they can read thought forms and I'm convinced that they can read thought forms of all living creatures from the smallest ants to the human being and the complexity of the human mind. And so they understand human psychology better than what we understand psychology. And again, I, I think that they're uh, collecting this information, they're collating this information, and they're using this information. And again, we find examples of this in the Quran with the Kiramin Katabin, which are the noble scribes or the noble recorders. Now, the noble scribes or the noble recorders are said to record good and bad deeds. But essentially, this is going back to the Socratic tradition of the Agatha daemon and the Kaku daemon, which are the good and the bad daemon. It was said that Socrates would speak to two daemons, which were the Agatha daemon and the Kaku daemon, which was this good and this bad daemon. And he would have this dialogue, which became the dialectic. So if you like, the linchpin of human or western academia is based upon this dialectic tradition which is this dialogue and this dialogue is really the difference if you like between the rational mind and the subconscious mind which is according to cicero the rational mind is the human mind and the irrational mind is the daemonic mind and again we're finding this also informs psychoanalytical theory in which they're borrowing upon this Roman idea of the rational and the irrational mind, which is this daemonic mind. And so the conscious and the unconscious mind feeds into the daemonic realm. And so the realm of ideas is the spiritual realm in which the mind can drift and the mind can penetrate the spiritual realm, which is timeless. And then the mind then conceptualizes this, which is the conscious mind. And so there is this interplay between the conscious and the unconscious mind, between the spiritual and the physical realm, which in the Platonic discourse would be the universal forms or universal ideas, which is the spiritual realm. And then these universal ideas, the, the implicit realm is explicated, it becomes particularized, it becomes physical. And so there is this, if you like, this interaction between the spiritual and the physical and the living. So, for example, we would see that there's a correspondence between animus, which is the spirit, and an animal. The animal is a being which has a spirit. So yes, there is this interplay between the realm of ideas and the physical realm, this implicit order, which is explicit, which becomes explicit within the physical realm. Hmm. Wow. Well, you're making all kinds of great points. And the history is really fascinating, the ancient stuff. But how do we know that there's still a continuation of this going on. Where do we see their lieutenants running the planet and the organizations of the Earth today? What organizations are they primarily working through now? Well, I think that they're found within the corporate logos. So, for example, uh, just off the top of my head, the Nike logo, I mean, Nike means victory, but again, is very synonymous with the Socratic tradition. So it's found all over within the symbology, but it's that's a very difficult question. And off the top of my head, it's kind of a question that I'd have to really think about and come back and probably give a very detailed answer. <laughs> right, right. Because my thought is that sometimes words and symbols have an original meaning, but then thousands of years later, people forget and they can't really recall what it was about, but they still quest for power. No, no question there. 
And rulers want to appear special and chosen by God. So like throughout history, how do we know this isn't something that at some point they just started using the, these motifs, the ruling class just kind of cooked some of this stuff up halfway through to justify their positions in society so that they didn't have to answer to the masses. They're like, oh, well, I was chosen by God. I think this is a really good point. I mean, obviously, you could argue that basically that the symbology is just from this secret society of individuals, that they've elevated themselves above everyone else because they are leaders and rulers. But I think the argument against that hypothesis would be the fact that we've got polyglottal symbols, which show or demonstrate that there are these angelic sailors, which are cross-cultural and found within all languages. And again, this idea that the king is identified with the angels is cross-cultural. So, for example, the Japanese lineage of emperors trace their lineage back to Rujin. Now, the word Rujin literally means dragon man. And again, within the Greek, you would have Basilikos, a serpent, and Basilius, which is a king. Within the Persian, Mao, a leader, Ma, which is a serpent. Arabic, Sarif, a noble, Seraph, a serpent. In the Greek, Archon and Drakon, or Archon and Akan from the Babylonian root, which is a seraph. So I, I think that these word plays, and again, even the Chinese emperor, Yong Lung, which is a dragon. Again, the imperial bloodline is equated with the dragon. So I, I think these word plays demonstrate a uniformity of belief. And therefore, we really do have to take seriously that Malak and angel is equated with Melek, which is a king. And this idea that the angels are identified with the angelic host and with this royal bloodline, which is defined as kingship. And again, even with the prince, Amir, a prince, Amara, which is a host. But again, we see that that is equated with the jinn as well. And so this is very interesting, these word plays, which keep on cropping up and are cross-cultural. But I, I think it's a criticism which some people would argue and, and would put forward. And I think that it's a valid criticism but when you begin to look at the symbology of the Illuminati, you're beginning to see these word plays which are conversant throughout many different languages. And I think that this is actually an interesting point in terms of the Illuminati, because the Illuminati are equated with Sirius. Sirau is, is the shining one. And the Illuminati are identified with angels. So, for example, in the Arabic, Akzari is a brother of light. Now, the Akzari is where we get the Latin translation of the Illuminati. But what's very interesting about the word Akzari, a brother of light, is that it's a diptych paranomasia, or it's a wordplay on the Aramaic expression Akzari. Akzari is a brother of an angel, alien, stranger, or foreigner. So the brothers of light are equated with an angel, alien, stranger, or foreigner. And when we break down the symbology, of course, the brothers of light is another representation of the seraph, serepha, which is fire. As we said before, the jinn are the seraphim because they're one and the same word. They are equated with Sirius, the shining one. And so we're seeing here that within the classical tradition that the angels are deemed to be, well, first of all, they're non-human, and this is very important. They're identified with an angelic host. Traditionally, they're also equated with ships and vessels. And again, their origins go back to Sirius. And so when we begin to piece this together, the ufological tradition is really this ancient tradition which goes back into the scaphological and classical tradition, which is this naval tradition going back to the angelic rulers and kingship. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a convoluted answer, but it's, <laughs> um, yeah. Well, that's a reasonable rebuttal. And 
I guess to ask you a little bit more about today, if this control structure is still in place and active, then we would have to assume they are ultimately driving something like the COVID-19 situation, ID 2020, the Great Reset, and the rollout of a global genetics-altering injection. Should we look at these things differently with this new context of a parallel society truly calling the shots here? No pun intended. Yes. I mean, I think that this is actually important. I mean, the coronavirus literally means king of the virus. Corona is a crown. And again, we're seeing that there's an etymology with COVID and Cabod, which is glory. Cabod was used to denote an angelic vessel, which was equated with cavit, which was a barrel. Now, in the Bible, the chariots of the gods were typically represented as spinning wheels. So we have references in the book of Ezekiel, for example, to the Ophanim. Now, the word Ophanim comes from the word Ophan, which is a wheel. Ophanim is the plural noun, meaning wheels. This is because the wheels are constructed together. So the word Ophanim is used to denote a flying saucer in modern parlance. But the flying saucers are constructed together as a series of interlinking cogs. And so the Ophanim wheels are constructed from um, a series of concentric circles or wheels. And again, the terminology is identified with Pana, which is to spin or to turn, and Ophir, which is to shine. So these are spinning, shining wheels. Now, obviously, some people have argued that the spinning, shining wheels are astrotheological. And I think that this is actually important because when we look at the Ophanim wheels, they were described as being constructed objects. So masa, it means something which is constructed or made. So these were constructed objects. But when we're looking at the symbology, what we see with the opening wheels is that they're often tied in with astrotheological symbolism. And so what we're looking at here is a very nuanced, layered picture within the symbology. So, for example, if you want to represent an angel, let's say, originating from Sirius, then you may have a shining wheel, and the shining wheel would then feed into the symbology of Sirius, but would also equate with the seraphim and their angelic vessels, which are these shining opening wheels. Now, sometimes within the symbolism within the Greek mysteries, you'll see that a throne is combined with the wheel. Again, this is a throne chariot, and the throne chariot is, again, is another symbol of a spinning wheel, which are identified with these angelic vessels. Another symbol of the opening wheels is a shield, a boss and shield. So you'll have a shield with a spike. This can be represented as a circle within a circle or a wheel and an axle. And again, hieroglyphically, this is used to denote Sirius. So therefore, we see that there is a representation. The representation of the wheel is a circle within a circle. It's a large circle with a small circle in the middle, which is an axle and wheel, which is the opening wheels. But hieroglyphically, this is used to denote Sirius. What's very interesting is that the votive dishes also are used as a glyph of Sirius. So the votive dishes typically have a circular and they have a little blob in the middle. And again, this is to denote the axle and wheel. So they're literally venerating these angelic vessels. As we said before in English, this would be to worship because they're venerating these vessels. In the Arabic, it would be sabah, to praise or to glorify, which is equated with sabah, which is the host, the angelic host. As we said before, in the Hebrew, sabah is transliterated as sabah. Sabah is equated with sabah, an army. Sevet, which is a crew of a vessel. Teva, which is an ark. So we're dealing here with these angelic ships or arks, which are equated with archons or malak, an angel, malak, a sailor. The word archon is used to denote an angel. Hmm. 
Well, you definitely know symbols and terms quite well. I am curious because we've had a lot of guests bring up the Black Cube. And of course, Kaba, you know, they have their whole thing with the Black Cube. There was a Black Cube put at the One World Trade Center. There seems to be a lot of Black Cube symbolism. How do you tie that in? Well, I, I tie that in, in in the murder of reality, and I go into a lot of symbology with the Kabbalah. It's, it's extremely complex, the symbolism. But we see that, if you like, there's word plays between Keb, which is a serpent, Kab, which is a coil, and Kabbalah, which is a cube. Again, the cube is used to denote a cube of a heaven, because the heaven is represented as a square. So it's a very complex symbol, and without going over my notes on the Kabbalah, it would be a very complex answer, so I think I'll just leave it there. But essentially, it's going into the worship of the serpent, Keb, which is a serpent, Kab, which is a coil. And again, this has connotations of Habel as well, which is pregnancy. And this idea of this divine lineage, which is equated with the serpent, and is equated with this royal lineage, which is the stitched or graft bloodline. Hmm. Right on. Well, you also mentioned the Illuminati, and that's kind of a term that might even get some eyes to roll around here. But I think you're using that term to denote the intermediaries that are put into positions of power from these masters of the waveform, let's say. And I've heard you talk about this in a lot of depth, that there are three sections of the Illuminati in this tripartite system, this hidden power. and I am curious, can you help the people map out this family tree of control, let's say? Yeah, I think that this is an important point. Essentially, the Illuminati are divided into three sections, and these sections work together cooperatively, but they also can be antagonistic as well. And again, this is because they're representing different contingents of the occult or esoteric tradition. So we have... The three parts of the Illuminati can be symbolized as follows. You have, in the Hebrew, Ishman is related to Esh, which is fire. And again, they're contrasted with the non-human elements, which are the Seraphim, Serefa, which is fire. So again, you have another component to the Illuminati. And then you have the Neophyte, which literally means Neophytus, the newly planted, Phot, which is light. So the newly planted, again, are equated with the Illuminati. Now, the Illuminati goes back into the symbology, as we said before, of the Axari, a brother of light, again, equated with Axari, which is a brother of an angel or an alien, a stranger or a foreigner. Again, these beings are said to be Musa, which are strange. So the symbology is going back to the Seraphic tradition and the Seraphic host. But essentially, the Illuminati has three components. You have this grafted bloodline, this cloned bloodline, again, clone, which is a twig equated with a clone. So the symbology of the twig is often used to denote this cloned bloodline, which is stitched. And again, this symbolism is often found within Genesis as well. In the Bible, you would have the tree of knowledge, and then you have the serpent, and you have Adam and Eve. And so the symbology there of the tree denotes this cloning or this clone or twig or the cloning of bloodlines, this stitching together or literally the grafting of, of the bloodlines within the ancient languages. And we see, therefore, within the occult tradition that there is this partition between, in the classical tradition, you have the Pythagorean tradition, which is, in the Greek, this would be Puthosagoria, the speaker of the serpent. So the speaker of the serpent is really this seraphic tradition, 
and is contrasted with the Euclidean tradition. Euclid is to copy or to ape, literally coming from the Arabic word curd, which is an ape. So the Euclidean tradition is working on this Arabic wordplay, this idea that mathematics copies or apes the external world. But when we break the Pythagorean Euclidean tradition down, really what we're looking at here is the Seraphic Cherubic tradition. I refer to this as the Seraphim Cherubim dialectic. So this is hidden knowledge which has been imparted to mankind through two distinct traditions, which is this occult tradition. This is the impartation of knowledge from non-human angels, which are the seraphim. As we said before, the, the seraphim are equated with the jinn, jinn, a serpent or worm in the old Semitic. And then you've got the cherubim tradition, which are these human angels. And therefore, the seraphim and the cherubim within the Bible and the Apocrypha, they often appear together. So the angelic host will often make reference in, in the Apocrypha, for example, in the Apocrypha, when they're talking about opening wheels, they'll often refer to the seraphim and the cherubim. So they appear together. And I think that this is actually very interesting when we look at modern ufology as well, because in many accounts within the ufological tradition, we see the same, if you like, the same representation. So these beings are often considered to be strange. They're often considered to be alien. As we said before, Zar is an angel, alien, stranger or foreigner. It's a polymorphic word. Again, Zara is equated to Sira, which is a boat. Again, even within the Latin, the same word plays are found. So, for example, in the Latin, alienus is an alien, alnus, which is a boat or a ship. And so these beings are considered to be strange, but they often appear with human entities as well. And this is also found within the ufological tradition, if you like, the combination between the human and the non-human element. And this is really part of the ufological tradition this idea that these beings impart knowledge. And we're still finding this today. So, for example, as many abductees will talk about that, they often feel that they've had a download of information and that these entities will tell them about the possible future. And often it's a very bleak future, but they impart information. And sometimes they impart very complex information as well, like mathematics or geometry. And again, they seem to communicate through symbolism as well. And so this is a very important part of the esoteric tradition is this symbolism, which is this layered language. The symbol is really compacted. It's composed of layered language, but it's almost like an encyclopedia. This symbol can be unpacked and it conveys a multitude of ideas and information with just one symbol. And we find this certainly within language as well, and the use of polymorphic language and the use of polymorphic symbols. So where words can have multiple meanings and therefore has multiple connotations and is found within this esoteric tradition, which we referred to earlier as the Wuju al-Quran, this forgotten recitation or the forgotten Quran, which is this exploitation of polymorphic language. So, yeah. <laughs> I love it. But man, what a whirlwind of information. This has been so interesting. As we're starting to wrap this thing up, you say in the book that the final order is to reunite our species and take our rightful place with the gods as co-creators and equal participants on the planet. And well, that's a nice sentiment, but how could we even do that? How could we get free? It seems like we're outmanned and outgunned, as they say. Is there a strategy that you think would work? Absolutely, yes taking individual responsibility. I think really what we need to do 
in terms of humanity is rather than pulling together and having these large movements which can be co-opted by secret organizations, we need to take personal responsibility. I almost look at it as like circuits on a circuit board. If we can get enough circuits to light up, then we can actually effectuate a, a change. And I think that this is really important. So, for example, I've been heavily involved in writing reports for my local council in West Yorkshire because they were trying to fluoridate the water, which is essentially poison the water. I educated the council. I, I sent, I think it was a 200-page report to my local council. And again, I was heavily involved in the research dispelling fracking within the UK. I wrote a book on why the government was breaking the law in terms of fracking and why it was a legal practice. And so we have to take responsibility. And, and again, it might not be something that you want to do. I mean, I wasn't interested in fluoride and I certainly didn't want to write a 200-page report on it. And that took me a long time. I'd much prefer to have been working on my follow-up to a holographic culture. And it's the same with the fracking book as well. I mean, my fracking book took me, I think, six months to write. And again, I'm working on a vaccine book. I'm looking at the history of vaccines from smallpox and polio, because again, the paradigm of vaccines are all based upon this early research. And I'm questioning how good is the science behind the early research? And when we begin to look into the early science, it's extremely questionable. So, you know, I'm doing this out of a sense of necessity. I'm not doing it because I want to. You know, I'm not interested in fracking. I'm not interested in fluoride. I'm, I'm not interested in vaccines. I'm doing it out of a sense of personal responsibility. And I think that this is what people need to do as well. We all have skills. We all have abilities. And some people might just be really good at posting ideas on Facebook and getting people to engage with ideas and to think about it. Other people may not be really very talkative or they may be very shy, but they could still do something like just post out some leaflets. Let's say that they wanted to put up a 5G mast near your school. Maybe you could post out leaflets and educate the general public about the problems with 5G and the potential problems there in terms of cancer. So I think it's a matter of taking personal responsibility. It's being able to use your skills that you have, whatever those skills are. You know, for some people, it just might be if you're a teacher, it might just be throwing controversial ideas at the students and talking to your students about ideas which are outside of the box. And I think that that's a responsibility. We have a responsibility to our brothers and our sisters in the world. We have a responsibility to ourselves and we have a responsibility to our families. And we need to really engage with this responsibility because. We're living in very troubled times, but I am an optimist and I do believe in the inherent goodness of mankind. I think for too long we've been told that we're sinful and we're almost wretched creatures. And I do believe that there is a lot of goodness within humanity. And I really do believe that humanity, once we can begin to piece together the knowledge and once we can begin to take responsibility for our actions and take responsibility for the planet, I think we can be a force for good within the universe. And I really do believe in humanity and I believe in the goodness of humanity. So that's really where we could tie up the interview maybe or on that positive thought that we take our responsibility and we, we try to be impeccable. And I think that this is important and, and it's really difficult. You probably know this because I put out YouTube when I have time in between my writing, I try and put out YouTube and, and sometimes people can be really, really rude and the natural inclination is obviously you just want to, you know, if somebody's horrible to you, you want to be horrible back. 
but you have to try and be impeccable in your behavior. You have to try and set an example. And I think it's important to try and be the best version of yourself and to try and set an example and to try and live an impeccable and moral life and try and set an example for your children and for set an example for other people. And I think if you do that, it's almost like a ripple effect. So a person who is, let's say, inspirational or is good, whether it's a teacher, whether it's a colleague at work. So, for example, if you've got really you're working with really difficult people, but you can rise above that and set an example, then what you will tend to find is that people, they start to behave themselves as well and they start to respect one another and things start to work much more smoothly. So it's taking that responsibility and it's working individually. And I'm a great believer in, in terms of it's almost what you're trying to do with the system because the system is always pushing, pushing, pushing. It always wants to take. And I think it's important to try and push back and obviously do push back in a way which is peaceful. But, you know, to do it in a way in which the system can't predict if suddenly, if you had 10,000 people listening to this and every single person on your channel who was listening said to themselves, you know what, I'm just going to do one thing. And that's what I would say to your viewers, just do one thing. OK, write it down, write down a pledge. I am going to deliver a thousand leaflets about 5G or I'm going to deliver some leaflets about vaccines or whatever you're interested in. And I'm just going to do one thing. The system can't accommodate that. It can't accommodate lots of different people doing their own thing. Now, this is what I advocate. So don't form large groups. I'm not saying that you shouldn't form small groups with your friends. <laughs> but when you form large groups, these groups can be co-opted by sinister organizations. Work individually and, yeah, try and make a difference. Try and, yeah, I know it sounds cliched, but try and make the change that you want to be you know, try and transform the world. Because I really do think that individuals can transform the world. So, for example, with my fracking book, I went to a meeting on fracking and there were three people in the meeting. And this guy travelled a distance to do this meeting. And he was like sighing to himself, oh, nobody's even going to listen to this. And I listened to it and I said to him afterwards, I don't want you to go away and think that you haven't made a difference because I listened and I, I've taken on board what you've said. This is very, very important. I'm going to write a book about it and I'm going to write reports to my local council about this. And that's what I did. And I sent out the reports and I got in contact with Friends of the Earth and the Friends of the Earth, they had my book and they said, this is really good information. We're going to send this to our lawyers because we're going to court at the moment over this. And about three weeks later, the people who were fracking, they pulled out of the UK and said, we're not fracking in the UK. I do think that my book did contribute because I provided legal arguments why it was actually illegal. But that occurred because of one individual. And that one individual only spoke to three people. So, you know, I really must impress upon indiv individuals and your audience that if you do something like put out leaflets or you talk to people and try and engage with people. And I'm not talking about in an argumentative, confrontational way, but I'm talking about in a way which is constructive. You can make a change and you can transform people's lives and you can transform situations that may seem impossible and you can transform those situations for the better. <laughs> Amen. Well said. Way to bring it home. Personal responsibility is definitely the key. We all have to participate somehow, and it seems like you and I have chosen our roles pretty wisely, but 
What a wild ride. Your book is definitely methodical and dense, and it makes a great case for the position that you take. I appreciate you breaking it all down for us. Before I let you go, tell the people the best way to follow up on your work and anything else you might be working on next that might interest them. The Hidden Kingdom, when's that going to drop? Well, I've got to finish this book on vaccines at the moment, so I'm not <laughs> sure. It's probably going to be next year now. I would have been releasing it this year, but I felt really compelled that I needed to write a book about vaccines. So that's something which I'm finishing at the moment. I'm in the finishing stage of that. I'll be proofreading the vaccine book soon. But The Hidden Kingdom should be coming out. I don't know. It might be the end of this year, next year. I'm, I'm not sure. You can find my work at P.S. Sabak Books. Sabak is spelt S-A-B-A-K, P.S. Sabak Books. Again, I've got a YouTube channel, so please subscribe. That's at Pierre Sabak, again, S-A-B-A-K. I try and put on videos regularly, but sometimes sometimes I may go a few weeks and there may be no videos, and then sometimes I may have a few videos which I release. It all really depends on my workload because I'm working full-time researching and I'm also trying to run my business and I have to post out books and there's orders and, and it all depends on my workload. So, But I do try and put out material regularly and I try and interview people within the occult and the esoteric and ufology and discuss lots of interesting ideas so please subscribe to my channel because obviously that helps me and it's been great to speak to you thank you very much for inviting me on your show and yeah thank you again you got it it's been great I'll make sure the audience has all the appropriate links in the show notes I appreciate all the work you do and we know particle wave duality is a thing, and it matches what we're experiencing in these strange encounters, so why not conclude that advanced beings have cracked it technologically? I think it makes sense. So great work and unique perspective. Take care out there. Thank you again. Thank you. And boom goes the dynamite. Bit of a weird one today, but with all the UFO stuff going on, I thought it would be nice to have a guest with a much different take than what we're getting on the nightly news. And Pierre's book, Holographic Culture, is a nice addition to anyone's weird stuff book collection. It's one of the thickest books on my shelf, and there's a lot of really great graphic work that helps illustrate his points along with images of a lot of the ancient symbols that he references to help make his points, and it's just very academic. I'm sure you can tell just by the way that he talks that he tries to keep this at a very high level. He takes it seriously, and it is his life's work. We are lucky to have people like Pierre, and I would like to see him get some appreciation for it, because... These subjects are just so often ridiculed, and even when people do take them seriously, it's still going to be a very limited audience to make your living from. So to do all this work, to put together such a large, detailed book, it's something to be respected. And this is obviously just the latest of several books that he's put together. And I think he's right on a lot of things. The relationship between words in the areas of divinity, royals, angels, and sailors. I can see his point that when you trace it back, these words and themes are all in the same soup. And across different languages, too. It's also a great point to simply say these beings have mastered wave-particle duality. 
I don't know if they've done it technologically or possibly it's a natural aspect of whatever they are, but I don't always hear these kinds of conversations put into that context. I was really intrigued by the idea that halos in religious artwork originally were to denote that a certain figure was of an angelic ship. I mean, the Vatican twisted and warped pretty much everything it touched, watered down spirituality to the point of being almost useless, and keeps their vast library so thoroughly hidden away under lock and key that there's got to be some deception here, and I think Pierre might have nailed it. It is weird that they're so secretive about the Vatican archive in modern times, isn't it? Even the CIA put together a digitized vault of a lot of information. And oftentimes, as the story goes, missionaries were told by an angel, a haloed being, where to build a church. If you put this in the context of, like, a military operation, an assault, or a colonization, it's like the angels are the generals telling them where to establish bases, probably to capture the energy centers of the planet. And then you build all this sacred geometry into the structure that plays on human consciousness. They have these crazy steeples with a big metal cross at the top. I think that creates some kind of energetic vortex or a welling up of such energies. Get a bunch of people in there chanting and drinking wine and listening to pipe organ music, and it probably only amplifies that energy. But it's all really compelling stuff to me. You know, when I interviewed Dean Henderson, he chalked Corona up to the crown, the queen, knighting Bill Gates and all that stuff. Pierre, in the second hour, took that one level higher. The crown, the Illuminati, these are just the intermediaries to the Angelians. (laughs) Along those same lines, I think most likely also in the Plus show, Another thing that was a mind blower to me was this idea of identifying the believers. Offering them a shot that will mark them as such ties in pretty nicely there. I've heard people make the case, well, wouldn't the elite want to give a vaccine to their most obedient sheeple and then maybe release a virus that kills all the rebels out there? And it kind of depends on what the goal is. And what reality is, if it's a soul school meant to be an initiation process of some kind about trusting yourself and your intuition and being your own God or some kind of Gnostic theme, then no. You mark the true believers because those are the ones who failed the test. Mm -mm -mm. (laughs) Mm-mm-mm. All great stuff, but Pierre is just a really interesting character, and interesting characters do the kind of work that we like around here. He's a nice guy, trying to do his thing. His website is easy to navigate. If you liked hearing him on this show, let him know. Check out more of his work. Sure, he's focused on this big picture, ancient alien controllers of the waveform stuff, but he's also stopping fracking in his city, He's educating locals on fluoride and vaccines. He's really one of the good ones, and I would love it if he came away from this experience feeling validated, feeling like his work is appreciated. So, I don't know, help me facilitate those warm, fuzzy feelings if you would be so kind. I know he was excited about doing this interview and the good things he heard about our audience size and passion, and so I just hope those things are confirmed. 
If you guys were into it, maybe we do a follow-up sometime built around his other book, The Murder of Reality, because it sounds equally interesting. I'm kind of jumping around in the aspects of what we talked about in the free show and the plus show, but, you know, if you're a little confused about some of this, it's time to sign up and join the club. In that second hour today, for the plus people who really make my world go round, we added a lot of interesting layers to the conspiracy cake. We talked about decoding the family crests of the elite, the naval lineage and naval intelligence, burying ancient weapons and relics at holy sites. We're familiar with this idea of X marks a spot, but maybe it was always a cross and not an X. I think a lot of movies have played with that twist. Getting Even with Dad, with Ted Danson, comes to mind. We also discussed where Pierre thinks the artifacts and buried saucers are on the planet. We talked about the Roswell artifact and the Invisible College. That kind of got pretty close to Chris Knowles's Roswell working material. Maybe Roswell was more of an occult thing rather than a crashed saucer from a distant planet. We talked about the Salvation Army's involvement in all of this. Seeding corporations that have advantages from the holographic culture, leading their industries. I asked about the idea that these beings are only here to exploit us. Maybe they are here to help in some cases. Pierre gave us a new take on the rapture. That's kind of what I was referencing earlier. Sucking people up into a vortex, seizing the true believers. I love that part. We got into Pierre's own encounters and the prospect of beings inside the earth. Egregores, tulpas, and living thoughts. It was a higher side chat's conspiratorial cornucopia, if there ever was one. Covered a lot, as we always do. I put a lot of work into sourcing guests and getting as much out of them as I can. I try to respect your time enough to earn that $8 a month, so help me out here. TheHigherSideChats.com to sign up. People have also asked about paying for Plus with PayPal because they don't use credit cards. Well, that is a big part of why I offer Plus through Patreon as well as the site itself. If you want to use PayPal to pay for Plus, then the Patreon option is there and you can get all the Plus shows in the same fashion. I also accept any cryptocurrency that can be held in the Exodus wallet, cash, check, or money order at the P.O. box that you'll find on the About page of the site, as well as barter and trade if you happen to be some sort of craftsman yourself. So, I'm pretty flexible. If you can come up with any way to reciprocate for this show, then I'm probably down for it. But it was a fun one today, if you ask me. Big thanks to Pierre for his years of dedication, probably someone who was a new name for a lot of you guys, and I hope you enjoyed it. PierreSabacBooks.com, and I'll see you next time. Your move, angelic sailors, elite liaisons, and keepers of the Angelian secret, your fucking move. When you see weird lights outside of your door Something sits on your chest when you sleep It might be a pattern you've been through before mm-hmm. Or you might have those screen memories and Darling, wait till we get some proof Still we'll make them see